I feel as if we should have a little bit of solemn music uh, playing behind my voice now. I, I need to take on BBC Tones for this special 130th episode of The Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and with me is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. And uh, we're in a solemn mood because um, as we speak, uh, the Prime Minister, the Governor-General and uh, a range of other people, Peter, are off to the funeral in London of Her Majesty the Queen, Her Late Majesty. What do you make of how much this seems to have, I guess, moved people more than we might otherwise have expected? Oh, yeah, look, I'm not surprised at the reaction of people to the Queen and her passing because, you know, I think she was always pretty well loved, even if... She was probably little thought about by younger generations. The interesting thing for me will be the sort of the what happens next, even though nobody wants to talk about it yet and or few people want to talk about it yet because, you know, of the you know, circumstances that, that this is still an ongoing mourning period. But I'm not surprised at the positivity towards her and the limiting of the negativity. What I am not so much surprised at but impressed by is the way that I think Anthony Albanese has managed to balance both what we know are his views around things like republicanism with a quite conservative reaction and a respectful reaction to her passing. Like he was never going to be an idiot about it, obviously. But I do think that he has embraced the traditions and the processes and the protocols in a way that perhaps some might have expected him not to be so inclined to do. And I think that shows a few things. I think it shows his parliamentary experience, his maturity, and I think it also shows his age to some extent because he is nearly 60. And so he is from a generation, even though he's always sort of originally of the radical left, he is from that more respectful generation when it comes to someone like Her Majesty. So on that front, I think it's been an impressive performance by him. Albanese is also a man who recognises the centrality of mothers. Mm. If you look at his own personal history, as he's spoken of often enough. And I think that one of the things about the Queen which she did in a remarkable way was that she became, and this is certainly true in Britain more than here, but she became an extension of people's own families in a somewhat ironic way for many people, but nevertheless a constant presence. So that when she left, it was like an extension of the family, you know, for a number of people and particularly of my generation. I thought she handled what she did admirably most of the time, even though I would hardly have been since the time when I was required to do so, to leave school and wave the Union Jack as she went by. <laughs> I'm not someone to go around the place waving the Union Jack, but still, she did a great job. And I think the um, recognition of that and the sense of her as, as of it being a kind of a family tragedy, you know, the loss of anyone at any age is always a tragedy. And I think it brings out people's own sense of what, of their own losses in life. Yeah, it's, it's interesting for me. I mean, for me personally, like I, I mean, obviously, like most people, she's the only monarch. I've ever known comfortably for me. And I guess I, I think about it in the context of having lost both my parents at a relatively young age. So I can sort of understand, even though she's of a, was of advanced years, uh, I can understand how her family around her were feeling. And I've always had that sense of, uh, you know, with people you know who are in the public spotlight like that, you know, politicians or monarchs or anyone of that sort, I do think about the sense of they have to share their grieving with the nation or the world when the passing of a loved one happens, that would be hard, you know, like it's hard enough when a loved one passes to go through the mourning period. It's a whole other step of what it means to then have to share it with the world or share it with the nation as you do if you're the son or daughter of a prime minister or in this case, you're the next monarch uh, or one of her 
one of her other children or grandchildren and so on. I mean, obviously, I, I, I get it in terms of her significance and, and why this is a, a real sort of totemic moment, I suppose. And I also understand the respect and the outpouring of grief and, and all the rest of it. It's interesting, though, on top of that, one thing I have always not got, if I could put it that way, is the whole nature of the British monarch to a lot of Australians. The reason I haven't, I think, is actually a, a family thing. You know, I'm the product of two migrants, an American and a Dutch migrant who met in Australia and, and I was born here. I, I don't have any British ancestry at all. And I didn't even have that sort of sense of two, you know, born and bred Australians raising me in Australia. So for them, coming to Australia and, you know, arriving and then embracing this country and therefore its head of state, who was at the time the Queen. No, I, I had an American mum and a Dutch dad. It was, you know, there is, of course, a, a Dutch royal family, uh, but it's different. And so that, that, I think, has been a, a factor for me in having what I would describe as a dislocation from the whole kind of nature of the British monarchy because of being the, you know, the, the son of, of two migrants from non-British realms, I suppose. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you look at the immigration that comes to Australia, a, a lot of it is uh, from India mm. or the subcontinent. And they have their own connection with the uh, with the Queen, and even more trouble one than ours with the British Crown. You know, others who come from East Asia, from China, and other places, and you know, places like yourself who who not connected with the British Commonwealth. You know, take a different view. I wonder if at the end of the mix, I'm sure there are some fairly bemused, you know, recent migrants from China going, "What on earth?" <laughs> but just the same, you know, they understand history of emperors and so on. So, I, mm. I th look, I think everyone kind of gets it on another level. It's how much everyone buys into it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but it's but it's interesting. Like, I mean, this is you know, I mean, this isn't a therapy session, Hugh, but I, I've only relatively recently started taking a strong interest in Australian history, even, which I think is also a product of being the child of, of two migrants. I've, I've read a lot about Dutch history and I've read a lot about American history as well as other elements of global history. But my knowledge base about Australian history has been incredibly limited, basically to what I was sort of force-fed at school briefly before moving on. And badly taught, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, back then. I've got to say, I'm a, I'm a migrant. I didn't do my schooling in, in Australia. I, you know, I'm, I'm a product of Asia and, and New Zealand, really. Mm. But I also think history... <laughs> Australian history seems to me, judging by the way in which everyone I know grasps Australian history, is really poorly understood. Oh, yeah. We, we get a lot of Gallipoli. We get a bit of Kokoda. We get a bit of, uh, you know, Gough Whitlam, perhaps. And if people go into political economy, into Howard and Hawke and Keating and so on. But uh, the frontier history is still a highly contested space that's not well taught. Anyway, look, I don't want to get too much off the subject there because I do want to take up your point about the maturity of Anthony Albanese in responding to these things. Because the easy thing for an Albanese to do or for a progressive uh, politician who's a, a Republican to do is to be drawn into the, the temptation of seeing an opportunity to push forward a Republican agenda. And the fact that he was so quick to say this is going to be pushed off for years to talk again about a republic because the priority is the voice and that's this term of parliament. A lot of Republicans kind of going like, well, I guess it is going to take a long time. I think it's a clever way to do it, though, because which, which I know you're also acknowledging it. It's, it's respectful, but it's also smart uh, in terms of his ultimate goals. The twofold goals. On the one hand, he wants to see the voice succeed. Now, we'll see whether it does, but I think it would be put in more jeopardy were it the waters to be muddied with two referendums, one around an Indigenous voice to Parliament 
the other around Australia becoming a republic, it becomes easier to mount a just say no campaign, which can, if you like, conflate the two inaccurately and result in both failing rather than either succeeding on their own merits. So that, that's the first part of the cleverness of keeping it separate for him to achieve his outcome on the voice potentially. The other part of it is he's just, he's, he, all he's done is say he won't do it this term. So in other words, he could have the voice referendum ahead of the next election, and then he could potentially, in theory, go to the election with a republic referendum, or at least maybe a plebiscite, do it in one, or do it early in a new term, having pledged that he would do so, and make that part of the campaign even. I mean, there are all sorts of options. I don't think he would have settled on any of them, but I think he maximizes his chances of success by going about it the way he has which is strategically and slowly and cautiously and avoiding a conflation of different issues. But he also, Hugh, and this is part of why I think it's both respectful and clever, he also preps himself politically for conservative-minded voters, particularly in those outer metropolitan seats, and don't forget, particularly in Queensland, in the parts of Queensland where he will be hoping to pick up seats that he missed out on last time, but he narrowed the margin for next time. He, he sort of shows himself not to be some sort of inner city Sydney radical, you know, who, who therefore stomps all over the Queen. It's not that these voters necessarily are fans of the monarch or the monarchy, I should say, but I think they are fans of due process and respect. And because he has shown that, I think that will have a residual effect for him politically, assuming that he continues to show it in other spheres as well over time. A, a couple of really interesting sort of mind experiments, I guess. Let's say we get, as is promised, a vote on The Voice. Now, there'll be the referendum, which will be fairly simply worded. Then there is the matter of then getting legislation through, which on the back of a referendum, if it passes, you'd think would have to pass, but there would doubtless be debate about, you know, the precise phrasing and the wording of, of what The Voice might actually entail. And that may follow into the next term of Parliament whether he gets it all done, the referendum and, and the legislation through before the next election. But then if he succeeds at that and then proceeds on with the Republic, might there be a sense that goes against the Republican instinct, I guess, where people go, no, 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 there's too much change all at once. You're trying to change everything all at once. And that it in fact goes against the Republic happening in the shorter term because you want to bed in the changes and so that you haven't scared people. And then the other point is what happens if you lose on the voice Surely, if you haven't got that up, that will pretty much queer the pitch, as they used to say, for then pressing ahead with another referendum on another constitutional matter, that being the Republic. Yeah, I think, that, I think those are all the risk factors that he faces. Uh, but in a sense, if he fails on the voice, then he's going to want to go back into his shell on those sort of issues and, and move in a different direction politically to try to politically survive the failure, I suppose. But either way, whatever happens with the voice first, I think his best path for getting a republic in some form would be to have a non-binding plebiscite, are you in favour of it or not, first, and then move to the next step of the actual referendum itself where you can then start to have a model and all the rest of it. You've got to have, I think, the plebiscite first, possibly then with options of what model to look at to help steer it away from dividing like what happened last time dividing people who are in favour of a republic such that they vote no because they don't like the model that's ultimately being put forward. So I think that is a, is a factor that he has to be conscious of when he's doing all of this. But there's a little bit more to it as well. I mean, I, I just think for Anthony Albanese, if he wants to try to achieve the republic, uh, which he clearly does, like I, th I think for him, this becomes a legacy thing, Hugh. You know, he wants the voice, he wants the republic, 
He wants to be able to go from one to the other. But you know, the, the risks on the way through are significant in, in terms of how he frames it. He needs to frame it as, as its time. You know what I think will help with that, though? And this is why going slow is a useful pathway. I actually think more time with King Charles as the king actually helps the Republican cause because you dislocate from the time of Elizabeth and you also, you know, Charles, we've already seen this, you know, he's sort of, he's a bloke, you know, he gets a little bit grumpy about his pen and he, he does have that aura of privilege about him in a way that's less tolerated than the aura of privilege that all such monarchs are always going to have. And, and I, I think more time with, you know, his head ending up on coins or oh, if I was Anthony Albanese, I'd let his head end up on the $5 note as a Republican, as a, as a tactic. I think the more time that there's a king of Australia in the role, and it's Charles, I think the more chances you are that people are going to decide, you know what, it's not that we hate him, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense to me why you would still be tied or tethered to the monarchy now that Elizabeth is gone. All right, let's just give ourselves a break on uh, royal duties as uh, reporters PVO. Lots of other stuff to discuss in the world. Back in just a moment. Welcome back. This is uh, episode 130 of The Professor and the Hack, and thanks for staying with us. It's an unusual sort of tone to it all because it's all this royal-flavoured stuff, and, you know, we've got days to go of uh, the funeral, and then when the Prime Minister gets back, Peter Van Elselen, uh, we've got this our own day of mourning, our own public holiday, which some people are scratching their beards over. I wonder, just on the subject of a republic, the great difficulty is for people, and this is where it failed last time, is getting a model that will satisfy people to make the change, sufficiently to make the change. What model would work both for getting voted in and for Australia as a nation? I think they just need to keep it as simple as possible to be able to just get it to succeed. Previously, I, I think it was an issue that we didn't get to elect the president because you know that, that collection of Republicans were frustrated by a parliamentary appointed president and therefore they sort of join the no cause. I think the amount of time that's passed since then has been a bit of a lesson to anyone who might favour that model. And I think it's fewer people now who do because of the realisation of what it means. You know, you look at Trump, you look at the US and the way that it can just sort of muddy the waters over who is responsible versus who is ceremonial if they're a directly elected president. But I think the time has also you know, made people who might tend to lean that way cognizant that if you kill it again, if it goes in a more conservative direction for the model, then you're, you know, you're, you're killing it for potentially 50 more years, not just 25 more. So I do think that's a, a factor in favor of the more conservative style of model, which might resemble what we had last time. I don't, I don't really have a problem with a, a president who essentially, like the governor general, just gets appointed by the prime minister, maybe with an extra, I mean, you know, as in suggested by the prime minister, uh, and therefore appointed by the prime minister because there's no monarch involved maybe with some sort of check where it has to be bipartisan or it has to get endorsed by the parliament. Something simple like that. You could bring the Senate president into it maybe somehow or the Senate writ large. I think that's your best chance of success though. Personally, the political scientist in me, I would like to see debate about becoming a republic once you had a plebiscite passed saying, yes, we're in principle in favour of becoming a republic. I'd like to see it result in an 1890s convention style period where we look at a whole host of other things as well. But that's not going to happen, of course, because it makes it more likely to fail rather than succeed. 
But I would like, uh, as, a, as a public policy advocate and as a political scientist, to see us look at a range of elements of our system with what can change and vary and all the rest of it, whether it's states, tax, uh, structures around courts, you name it. But none of that's going to happen, Hugh, because that just becomes too complicated in a discussion when it comes to a referendum and, and too easily rejected as a consequence. Things are too easily torn down, I think, in a social media age. And I think if you go back to the 1890s, there was an understanding that elites would make decisions. And uh, these included the landed elites, the city elites, to a certain degree, the labor elites would have a voice so that it was more representative. Whereas now, I think in a social media age with everyone having a voice, the, the capacity for there to be you know, real change, I think, I, I think in a more profound sense, I think we live in a more fractious age and I think it's, it's that much more difficult to get anything done. You know what's funny is there's an irony to it as well because the irony of, I completely agree, the irony of it being more difficult to get things done in the age that we're in, the social media age, is that we become more conservative because it's harder to achieve change. So therefore, we stick by archaic institutions that need to be changed. And isn't that ironic that it was back then in a more conservative period of time that we were more radical in our ability to think outside the square? You know, Australia federating the way it did, moving to compulsory voting, having a preferential voting structure, all, all these sort of things. Women the vote. You know, we were one of the leading countries to do that. So progressive, right? Whereas today, to do modern equivalents, social media where everyone likes to fly their flag and think they're progressive, the way that the debate ensues as a consequence makes progressive ideals almost impossible to achieve. It's fascinating. I think you've said something there which is really actually important. I'd never thought of it before, that we are becoming in a loud individual sort of demand for change perversely conservative in our capacity to deliver it. Mm. That's, uh, it's fascinating. That's, that's one to go off and cogitate on. I want to look to a couple of other issues that are coming up because there are some big ones coming up. Plainly, the, the parliament uh, session, which was due to happen, has been cancelled. The immediate one, that'll be made up. Those days will be made up, according to the prime minister. But uh, the one that was due to be coming up and that we would have been talking about this week was the Integrity Commission, which is uh, being brought forward by the Attorney General. And we also have an economic statement coming up now just a few weeks away. Let's talk to the Integrity Commission. Do you think this will have any problem passing? Oh, I think that there will be debate about what the model looks like, but ultimately I think it will pass. The Prime Minister's planning for the worst though, isn't he? I mean, he's already getting attacked for potentially breaking his promise to legislate it before the end of the year if it doesn't pass. I'm all for holding politicians to account for what they promised to do and not do, and I'll be doing that when it comes to the stage three tax cuts, if he breaks that promise, because he was very explicit deliberately during an election campaign that he would be legislating them. And so if he breaks that, I have an issue with that, even though I actually think the stage three tax cuts are problematic as policy. But this one is a bit different. I mean, he's, he's bringing forward legislation. He's going to try to get the consensus to pass the legislation. If it doesn't ultimately pass until the new year, rather than by the end of this year, that to me is not representative of a broken promise, because ultimately, a government pledging to pass legislation for, I, for an independent corruption commission before the end of the year is met if it tables the legislation and looks to try to implement it. But if it can't quite get the numbers where they're supposed to be, negotiations can take a little bit longer. That's not analogous 
to what Scott Morrison tried to suggest. Yeah, they're not going to get punished at the next election because the thing landed in February or March rather than December. No, no, not at all. And and, and I think, you know, the, the only reason I could see that it wouldn't pass would be if the crossbench thinks that it's too weak and the Liberal Party just block it because they think that it's too strong, which would be an interesting, you know, sort of joining of forces a little bit like, dare we say, the yes and the no votes in the last Republic referendum when it came to those direct presidential electionists joining with the monarchists. So, I mean, I think it would be unlikely to happen. I would have thought Labor will have enough elements in it to get the crossbench on board, but who knows? We'll get a better look at it when Parliament does return and and it becomes an issue. On the economic statement, I went along to see the speech from the Governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, just after the latest 50 basis point rise a fairly significant speech. Most people in the room, economists and bankers, took from that and the markets took from that a hint from him that while interest rates will continue to rise, they may not continue to rise at quite the same pace. So in other words, maybe not 50 basis points. However, we're seeing continued horrible inflation figures coming out of the United States, a complete bath on Wall Street. We are in a state globally and in Australia where there is still a profound tenuousness about the economy, even though the economy is still growing in Australia, what should we expect from Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, with his economic statement? How much, you know, some people call it a mini statement. I think you've called it a a mini budget. I mean, what really are we expecting from him? I'm expecting two things. One, I'm expecting a strong rewrite of the figures, right? So he will be able to paint an updated picture from what was brought forward ahead of the budget. So in other words, you know, inflation forecasts and and what the likely growth forecasts therefore are and, you know, interest rate adjustments that will affect debt moments and all the rest of it. So that's the complex side of the budget, which I think will be interesting for the boffins to look at. On the more public facing side of his his budget in October, at the end of October, I I think we're going to see very little when it comes to new spending. I think it's going to be a belt tightening budget. And I think he will try to justify that off the back, as he's been doing rhetorically already, off the back of, you know, as he puts it, inheriting a trillion dollars of Liberal Party debt, as he calls it, you know, the budget heaving under the pressures of all of that debt. So he will put it back on the previous government why this new Labor government isn't going on a spendathon. What will be interesting to me, though, Hugh, will be what happens by the time we get to May next year or the year after when we're likely to be in an election year. That's when it's going to get interesting for me, because all of a sudden then he's going to have to take more responsibility for where the budget is at, because they'll have been in government for a bit longer by then, either one year or two years uh, in those two respective budgets. But this one will be about recalibrating the data and sending a message that a new Labor government doesn't suddenly start spending. That's what I'm expecting. Yeah, long-time budget watcher Chris Richardson, known to everyone who's uh, followed budgets over the last 30-odd years or so, is of the view that he will deliver a, an unexpectedly strong, unexpectedly in the public sense, strong improvement of the underlying deficit figure because we've been making a lot of money out of two things. One is commodity prices overseas. The prices have been good and the taxes have been flown through. But the other thing is, is that with so many people employed, uh, that produces uh, a tax benefit, a tax boon. And and if you add those two things together, and if he's not you know, enabling big new spending 
results. He's going to be able to say, look, I told you that we had to deal with this massive debt that we inherited and the deficits we, you know, that were, were kind of chalked in by the previous government. Look at what I've done. It's better than it seemed that it would be. And then claim credit for those improvements. I think he'd be better off, politically speaking, to do that the following May or the May after that. Yeah, I, I, it doesn't pass the sniff test for me, the idea that he would stand up in an October budget when they only got into government in May and only had their first parliamentary sitting at the end of July and then suddenly say, look at what I've achieved by turning the budget around. I think he'd be better off to keep growth forecasts pessimistically lower than they otherwise might be. And I think he'd be better off to see downside risk when it comes to what unemployment might do because of things like inflation and so forth. And that way, when the actuals start coming in over the subsequent 12 to 24 months, as they count down to an election, if those actuals match the pessimism of an October mini budget, then he can say, I told you so. It's always been thus. But if they do better than expected, and it's all upside for him, if that's the case, then he can say, look at how great I've been. Look at how great this Labor government has been. That was what, slight differences, but that was what the previous government tried to do in the way that it slightly tweaked its numbers on the way through. It would try and do that. And you know, it would sort of do that as in countdown moments to elections and so on. It particularly worked for them in 2019. But I, I, Labor doesn't tend to do that. Labor's biggest problem when it comes to the budget, Hugh, in my view, is that it over-promises and under-delivers. Whereas the coalition, and this is not a reflection on them being better economic managers, it's them being better at the economic spin, they under-promise and tend to over-deliver, at least in the countdown to an election. And then, of course, they under-deliver as soon as the election's out of the road. Yes, that's, uh, you say, as you say, that may well be uh, a wise approach for him. And just very quickly, we've got this uh, extension of the pandemic payments announced by the Prime Minister this week. But what has emerged in that, intriguingly, is what the government at least says is a fairly widespread rorting of pandemic payments. Mm. I mean, the, the view is, is that you can't make repeated claims, you know, four, five, six claims for pandemic payments in one six-month period. That's plainly a rort. You know, maybe at a time when you had to isolate if you had people in your household who were sick in large households, maybe you did have to keep on taking time off work because you've got kids inside the house or parents inside the house have got it. But uh, interesting to see uh, a Bill Shorten and a Labour government, which has fundamentally spoken well, it's built into the way in which they do business, uh, more about the need to look after people who are at the uh, who are struggling, using the rhetoric of we will use the full force of the law to crack down on people who, who game and scam and defraud the system. Well, I think it speaks to the obviousness of what looks like the fraud of people claiming this on so many multiple occasions in such a short period of time. I think it ended up calculating out to some people were claiming it on average once every six weeks. Which, which doesn't pass any pub test, as Polly's like to, to call it. But it is unusual, you're right, to see them talking about it in, in that way. You know, it's normally the Liberals that do it, and then Labor says that they're attacking some of the most vulnerable in the community. But this you know, seems to be a clear rort. And again, it's the difference between incumbency and opposition, isn't it? Once you're the incumbent, you don't want to be seen to be weak by not sort of cracking down on fraud. And so therefore, you see that pivot. Just as a very quick thing, Hugh... I, it's not going to surprise me. I know that he's extended the pandemic leave beyond the end of September, but it comes with the caveat that there is still mandatory requirement of five or seven days isolation, depending on where you work, by governments. He made the point that when that five or seven days mandatory isolation gets removed, they'll reconsider whether they continue pandemic leave, and they almost certainly won't, because yeah, the, the, the suggestion is that it's necessary when the government is requiring you 
to isolate. It wouldn't surprise me when they have their next meeting at the end of September if as early as then, state governments start getting rid of mandatory isolation, which could actually mean, interestingly, that they end up wrapping it up as planned at the end of September, because if they make that change then, then it just automatically happens to wrap up at the same time. We will see. That might not happen. But that's something that none of us really sort of, in our reporting of it the other day, made that point. It's like, yes, big change. He's extended the COVID payments. Well, you know, let's catch up again in 14 days because maybe he hasn't extended it. Maybe he's just gotten the bump of people saying, good on you for extending it, Albo, when he actually wraps it all up next national cabinet meeting when they say, you know what, let's get rid of mandatory isolation periods. Yeah, and the fascinating life cycle of a pandemic from complete panic and total lockdown into, yeah, there's no mandatory reason to stay away from the office. (laughs) You know, do what you like. You're on your own now. (laughs) Peter, good to talk to you as always. Likewise. Listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.